We're live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, It Happens Every Spring, DiMaggio, Maze, The Splendid Splinter, and A Lifetime at the Ballpark, published by Triumph Books, written by Ira Burkow. Please join me as we welcome home Ira Burkow to the clubhouse. Thank you. I believe third, uh, third time. Third time? Yeah. Well, it's, it's a pleasure always to be here. It's, it, everything is so well done. Uh, the host is fabulous, and his wife looks gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I certainly appreciate that. Uh, and just ver uh, a very mini bio of Ira's, mainly for the podcast listeners. Uh, Ira Burkow was a former sports columnist and feature writer for the New York Times, where he worked for more than 25 years. He shared the Pulitzer Prize for national reporting in 2001 and was a finalist for the Pulitzer for commentary in 1988. He is the author of 25 books, including the bestsellers Maxwell Street, Survival in a Bazaar, and Red, a biography of Red Smith. His work has frequently been cited in the prestigious anthology series Best American Sports Writing, as well as the 1990, 1999 anthology Best American Sports Writing of the Century. Uh, and just to get us going, usually the first question is how did this book project come about? But here, since it's a compilation of your work, it's not really an appropriate question. So instead, I'm gonna get us going with a, a book that you write about it's in this. It's a, without, that, without you getting that book, you're probably not sitting here, and this book probably doesn't exist. If you could just talk a little bit about a book that you once got uh, by Winston Churchill. Oh, thanks for asking. Uh, uh, there's a, uh, a piece in, the, in my book called Painting with Words. And it's, I, I wrote the piece for a, uh, a journal called Creative Nonfiction. And it's about the process of writing, uh, which is of great concern to me. You know, maybe beyond, you know, surely beyond, you know, sports. But you know, and sports is always a vehicle for 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 my writing, for my interest in writing. But um, uh, it reminded me, and I, I start to piece off. I had read a a book, a small book, which was really like a long magazine article by Winston Churchill called Painting as a Pastime, in which he talks about first when he began to paint and how he began to see things. And he said that before he began to paint and observe things he had never observed before, he never uh, recognized uh, the shadows on buildings. At, uh, at dawn or dusk, and the way the shadows were on buildings. And that was important for me to, to see. Now, uh, uh, growing up, I was interested in, in art. I, in fact, when I was about 11 years old, I was growing up in Chicago, and uh, I had a scholarship to the Chicago Art Institute. But it was at the same time that I discovered baseball. <clears throat> uh, and so I dropped the Art Institute, even though I'd gone there for a couple months and uh, was more interested in baseball. And, uh, but the painting is a pastime, I, and, and through what Churchill saw, I enhanced, it enhanced my own 
uh, observations. And there's, there's uh, a piece that I, I mentioned about, I was in spring training in 1972, and it was getting late in the afternoon, and Willie Mays was at bat, and Willie Mays was near the end of his career, and Willie Mays strikes out, and talking about shadows, as he's walking back to the dugout, old Willie Mays, now old Willie Mays, what, 41, 42 years old, but he was trailed by his shadow. And it was as if Willie was a shadow of himself. And, and I wrote that, it, if it hadn't been for Churchill's book, I wouldn't have observed that particular you know, thing for, at that moment. But it enhanced other things in the way, uh, uh, and then uh, I, I read where, uh, and Churchill was interested in how artists, what artists saw and what artists observed. And, and, I, and I read where Hemingway would go to museums, as I began to do, even before I realized Hemingway did, and I would go to museums, and I would look to see what the great artists looked at, what, what interested them, you know, and so to enhance my own perceptions of, of writing. And, uh, um, you, know, you know, why does Van, Van Gogh, is which you his name, <laughs> but Van, why, does, why does he do this bed, you know, and how does he do the bed, and what interested him in the bed? And it also it reminded me, I, I went to Cleveland Museum, and they had a painting, painting of uh, a Rembrandt painting of an old man. And if you get right up to the old man, uh, uh, or if you stand back, and you see the veins on the old man's hand, you get up closer, and it's just a brushstroke. It's just a brushstroke. And I thought, if I could write and be able to have a brushstroke tell the story, you know, uh, uh, it, you know, it, it was, it was in instructive for me, to, you know, to attempt. Did I succeed? Rarely, but I, God knows, <laughs> I, God knows, I tried. And uh, I, so you don't always have to say everything. You can just use brushstrokes sometimes. Sometimes you have to say, you know, more. Uh, but even Rembrandt did more. I mean, <laughs> he did more with his hats and so forth. You know. But um, so those were those were some of the things. I'm glad you brought that up, and because uh, that's an important piece for me uh, in that book, and, and talking about um, my influences uh, as a, as a writer, which went beyond writing. Of course, it went into uh, art, also 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 in music, which I didn't talk about there. But in music, uh, sometimes there's the contrapuntal. You know, I. I I took a course in, in music, so-called music appreciation in college, which in, 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 and, and, and the rhythms that musicians use, and you can use rhythms in writing, you know, uh, da da, and even a, you know, opening a uh, paragraph, da da, da da, da da, and uh, so these were all things that um, I that I tried, and there were all in influences, uh, um, you know. It, Beethoven and Rembrandt were influences in my <laughs> writing. And uh, the book, uh, this book, they arranged it in 11 chapters. Uh, for example, some of the chapter headings, uh, headliners, special moments, viewpoints, baseball and writing, uh, which I believe that's where the, uh, that story is, is right. in that chapter. Yeah. I'm going to start somewhere else. I'm going to throw you another curveball. Okay. Uh, there's a chapter entitled they did make a name for themselves, uh, and I love the stories uh, throughout that. 
and I just want to read very briefly, uh, and then I want to ask you something. It's not, you, know, it, you may or may not even remember who this guy is because it's not a headliner. The, the, the na I'm just going to read about three paragraphs. Uh, the name of the piece is, uh, the title is Hercules Pain, the Spring Training Phenom, February 21st, 1990. The story opens. Hercules Payne, a 22-year-old rookie pitcher, couldn't wait to get to spring training. He hurriedly packed up his belongings, jumped into his car, a red javelin, though as his reputation expanded, camp gossip would turn it into a long white Cadillac, mm -hmm. and drove straight from Pine Bluff, Arkansas, to Fort Myers, Florida, where the Kansas City Royals trained. Hercules wheeled into town at 4 o'clock on that February morning in 1971, the first player to arrive. Only when he began to unpack did he realize his glove and baseball shoes were still at home. And it ends, I writes, what stands out for him about the spring of 1971? Quote, I remember Mrs. Kaufman, the wife of one of the owners, saying players weren't allowed to go without socks outside the clubhouse, even with shower shoes, he said. I thought that was great, it was big league. And to this day, even when I throw out the garbage, I always wear socks. <laughs> uh, so if there's anything that hits you either about Hercules' pain, but uh, I was just fascinated on how a story like that even comes to be. How do you okay. write about Hercules' pain? Okay. Uh, first of all, I grew up in Chicago reading Red Smith. Red Smith was syndicated in the Chicago Sun-Times. And, and in, at that point in my high school days, the, the basketball box scores were next to Red Smith's column, it turned out. And I played high school basketball. And so, and I was reading nothing pretty much in high school, and, except the box scores. And so I looked for my name, a, a, a Burko, you know, 004 or something, you know. And, but, uh, but, uh, uh, and, uh, but Red caught my attention because he'd write some offbeat pieces. And, uh, and so it influenced me. And you know, so I go to spring training, and where maybe some other writers wouldn't care about Hercules pain, you know, stuff like that. But I, I was just enchanted, you know, with with someone like like him. He didn't make the team, and that was that was the end of it. But it was funny, and you know, and so other players talked about him, and so I, I followed it up. Uh, and Red wrote maybe five and six times a week, and then later would cut back to four when he came to the Times, and at the end it was three. Uh, but when I started out at, at the Minneapolis, at, um, at the Newspaper Enterprise Association in New York, which was a Scripps Howard syndicate for 750 papers, I was writing like five columns a week. So you couldn't always write just what's on the news, which was fine with me because I would look for offbeat stuff. And one of the things that uh, it, in today's sports sections, you don't get those funny offbeat stuff anymore. They don't, it just, it doesn't exist. Now, you may want to read about Polish mountain climbers for 3,000 words, <laughs> you know, which was the, the, lead, the lead piece in Sunday's, you know, a paper, you know, and it may interest you, you know, but I, I don't know what the, what the target audience is, but it isn't me, you know. Uh, but, but uh, and maybe, it, maybe I, I, sh I should have given more attention to it. But, it but, but I was more interested in, you know, an 800-word piece about somebody like Hercules Payne uh, attracted me, but this was also the world of sport, the dreams of this guy, 
you know, I mean, I do have pieces on Nolan Ryan and, and, and Cal Ripken and uh, Barry Bonds and, 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 of course, Pete Rose. But there are also the Hercules pains, you know, that were fun, you know, to, to have in, in, in my world of, of, of writing. And, I'm, and I'm, really, I'm glad you picked that up. I'm glad you picked that up. Well, I, we're definitely going to leave a lot of time for questions because it's a special treat when you have someone like Ira here. And I really appreciate uh, everyone coming out and sitting in a bit of a schwitz. Uh, and we have some tremendous writers uh, in the audience as well. So uh, I definitely want to leave a lot of time. So I guess the only other thing uh, for now that I want to ask about is, this is obviously it's a different type of book. It's just compilations. So uh, the, the first chapter is headliners. And there's probably more than 20 stories in that. So for example, some of the names in headliners that these stories are about, Mickey Mantle, Casey Stengel, Billy Martin, Ted Williams, Joe DiMaggio, Roberto Clemente, Satchel Paige, Nolan Ryan, Tom Seaver, uh, Pete Rose, Brooks Robinson. Uh, if there's anything that j just hits you that you just want to talk about. Well, the earliest piece, 1969, Satchel Paige. When he was hired by the Atlanta Braves uh, as a coach, he had only had like four and a half years of playing in the major leagues, and you need five years for a pension. And Ted Turner hired him uh, in 1969 to be a coach. And he didn't do too much, but, and so he was in spring training in, um, uh, where was it, maybe West Palm. It may have been West Palm. There's a dateline there. But anyway, uh, 1969, and, um, and here was Satchel Paige. And so he was sitting outside of the clubhouse, and I went and I sat sat and we, and we talked. And, and what, the thing that's striking, which I have in the piece, he said to me, have you seen Jackie lately? Now this is 1969, and meaning Jackie Robinson. And I said, well, yes I have, why? And Jackie now had become gray, he had the diabetes, he had the um, yellow jaundice, and he, he died uh, three years later, I think it was. But anyway, Satchel Paige, who had an indeterminate age himself, <laughs> uh, said to me, and he said, have you seen Jackie? And I said, yeah, why? And he said, he looks like my grandfather. And uh, I, was, I, was moved, I was moved by that, you know. And, uh, but that was, that was one of them. You know, one story I don't have in there, and it's in it, but this gentleman's wearing a, a giant's uh, outfit, and I had uh, done it when when uh, Dave Rigetti, who's now the pitching coach of the Giants, when Rigetti was with the early with the Yankees, he was going to be a young phenom. But they sent him down to the minor leagues at one point. So I went down to the minor leagues, maybe maybe in Columbus, to do a story on him. If you do a story on somebody in the minor leagues and they come up to the major leagues. It's like you've been in a foxhole with them. <laughs> and so they always remember you and remember it. So I, had, I developed a relationship with Rigetti. He may have forgotten it by now, but, this, but when he came up, and now he's with the Yankees, and now he becomes, becomes a star. And at one point, I went over to him, and, and I remember we were in the clubhouse, and I asked him a question. I don't remember what the question was. But he said, Ira, he said, if I answer this question, the guys in the clubhouse, they'll get pissed off at me, and, and so I, I can't answer the question. So, 
the best thing you can do in a, in a moment like that is not say anything. So I looked at him, he looked at me, I looked at him, and he said, you know, these guys in the clubhouse, they don't read the New York Times, I'll tell you. <laughs> And, and he told me, you know, but it also, <laughs> but it reminded me, also, um, uh, I have a piece in there about Michael Jordan it, when, he, when he went to play baseball in Birmingham. Mark Clarkson. Pardon me? Mark Clarkson was the GM. Was he? Well, okay. But, uh, so I go down and I knew Jordan when he was a star with the Bulls, of course. And now I go to see him, and I knew him, and uh, he's sitting in front of his locker with a bat between his legs, and there's all these young guys around who are really good, and he wasn't. And the look in his eyes now, I remember the look when he was a star basketball player, full of confidence. The look now was one of befuddlement. And the manager of that team, that double-A team, Terry Francona. So it was the same kind of thing. So I went, you know, you talk to the manager, you know, and so I'm, I'm a guy from the New York Times coming down. So, and I'm talk, you know, I just want to talk to everybody, do what I can. And uh, so Francona, and we had a good, it was fine. So sometime afterward, Francona becomes manager of the Red Sox. And I go to Boston and I'm going to do some, you know, they have a small clubhouse in Boston, and, uh, and I was going to do something on a player, may, may have been Manny Ramirez, which was, didn't turn out to be anything. <laughs> but anyway, God knows I tried. But anyway, <laughs> I, I, it was somebody, and so I was, I was going, and the, there was a manager's office in the front, so, but I, I had my eyes on the player. So I walked past the manager, as I walked past the manager's office, I hear Ira, and I backstep. It was Francona, you know. And he says, don't you say hello? <laughs> <laughs> so that was, you know, that's the, the minor league uh, thing. Uh, does anyone want to get us going, or do you want me, uh, Lee, Lee, you well, get us going. Chicago win. Were you growing up Cubs or White Sox, and how, how does it feel that you've, the, the curse is gone? Uh, I grew up in Chicago. I grew up on the west side to begin with. And I was equidistant to Comiskey Park and Wrigley Field. And now my baseball consciousness began when I was about eight years old in 1948. The Cubs had been in, the, in a World Series in 45, which I hardly knew. But the White Sox were still the Black Sox from 1919. And everybody in the neighborhood was a Cubs fan. So I grew up as a Cubs fan, even though I was ecumenical about sneaking into Comiskey Park and Wrigley Field when I was alone. So, so uh, I did, and, uh, uh, but I, I maintained a, a Cub fan, and I didn't root against the White Sox. And as my dad said, they were both Chicago teams, you know. But my heart was Wrigley Field, you know. And, and I've written, and I've always felt that if you take the White Sox players and put them in Wrigley Field in Cub uniforms, but put them in Wrigley Field, take the Cub players, put them in, what, now Cellular Field with White Sox uniforms, the attendance will be the same <laughs> because it's the ballpark. It's the ballpark, and it's the ambience of the, the, the whole area around the ballpark. Uh, I mean, if you go to a game at Wrigley Field, I mean, there are people out in the, the bars across the street. They're in. They're drinking beer in the uh, the lobby areas. 
but you don't have that in in Comiskey in a cellular field. You know, it's it's you know as as they say, it's a happening uh, in Wrigley Field. It wasn't early on when I was growing up because I would go to Wrigley Field and there were uh, you know eight thousand people. You know, there was you know the, <laughs> the, there was the, the joke about um, uh, uh, and the PA system. Um, uh, 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 the, the woman who has uh, who lost her nine kids, uh, please uh, uh, contact us at the PA address system because they're beating the Cubs eight to nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and there was, and there was, there was, a, and there was also the joke. You'd see somebody on the street. So how the Cubs do? The Cubs won. Pittsburgh nine. <laughs> <laughs> So you, you grew up, Lee, you know, you grew up this way. Another thing is, at the end of the baseball seasons, the Cubs, it was eight game, eight team leagues. Invariably, the Cubs were battling either the Pirates or the Reds for seventh place <laughs> to see who would not end in it. So it would come down, they're tied at the end of the season, <laughs> and, and they have a three game series. And so, you know, you're listening on the radio. You're you're rooting for the Cubs not to end in last place. <laughs> you know? So so when when you uh, so now when they have this great team, you know, and uh, and that World Series. I mean, uh, and uh, Dolly and I, my wife and I, we went to the the series in uh, in Chicago, and uh, it was just a t tremendous, a moving uh, experience. Um, and uh, but. There's a story I have in there uh, about Hank Sauer. And Hank Sauer was the great uh, left fielder and home run hitter for the Cubs. And it was 1952, and I grew up on the west side. I later moved to the north side uh, after grammar school, but this was 52, I was still in grade school. I was 12 years old. And we would sneak in to the ball games. And we'd go sometimes early sneak through the vendor's gate as if we're gonna work for the vendors. <laughs> but we'd find ways. And then this one time, my friend and I, he was 14, I was 12, we went down into the dugout, the Cubs dugout, <laughs> as, as the Cubs were in batting practice. Nobody else in the stands. So we're sitting there. So the players didn't sort of take much attention to us because maybe we're sons of you know the owner. You know, they didn't know. And so, I mean, what are two kids doing in the, the dugout? <laughs> So uh, uh, Sauer was then uh, in the midst of an MVP season for the, the lowly Cubs. MVP also in the All-Star game and led the league in home runs, I think RBIs that season. So uh, he's shagging flies in left field and now he's gonna take batting practice. So he comes in, he takes his glove and tosses it right next to me on the, on the, on the dugout. <laughs> So I, I take the glove, wow, this is, and I remember it was a Ted Williams model, and, and wow, major leaguer's glove, you know. I look, and so my friend said, now remember, from our, we were in a certain neighbor, kind of neighborhood. So my friend says, let me see the glove. Sure. I give him the glove, he puts it under his sweater, and he starts to run out. I said, come back here, you get this Hank Sauer's glove, let's get out of here. I said, well, at least stay for the game. Are you kidding? We're not staying for the game. So to tell you what kind of a criminal mind this 14-year-old kid had. <laughs> so there's the elevated train right by the ballpark. So we get on an elevated train, and two stops later, he says, let's get off. 
So we get off, we get on, a couple stops later, off again. The reason is he said, maybe somebody's following us. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now he's got Hank Sauer's glove. So that winter, I think it was in Sport Magazine, they do a profile of Hank Sauer. And I'm lying in bed reading the Sport Magazine article, and it says, Hank Sauer is very careful with what he does with his baseball glove, because his, his glove last summer, during the summer, disappeared. He doesn't know what happened to his glove. Well, I'm feeling so guilty, and I'm 12 years old. I'm beginning to sweat. So now I'm thinking, how do I confess to him without giving up my friend? Because you can't rat on somebody in your neighborhood, you know. But anyway, so now I'm older, and now I'm a sports writer. And, and Sauer, <laughs> Sauer, and Sauer, Sauer is, Sauer's with the Giants. And he was a, like a scout with the Giants. But the Giants always trained in Arizona. And I liked going to spring training in Florida because I was such a professional that I preferred the ocean. <laughs> so I would, I would want to go to spring training where the ocean was. So, and uh, so anyway, I didn't, I was following him, knowing where he was or so, but I didn't connect. Okay. Now we go to 1989, the Giants A's World Series, the Earthquake Series. But before that, I was thinking, I know he's a scout, I know he's involved with the Giants, I'm going to find out where he is, and I'm going to find him, and I'm going to confess to Hank Sauer and tell him what happened to his glove. So, I, uh, he, uh, uh, so now it's the earthquake before the game, like 504, I think, was the quake. And everything, everybody's running out, and all the phones were going out, and I got one phone left in the press box, and I called my wife, Dolly, and, I, and she said, look, I can't talk right now, I'm going out jogging. I said, you're not going to hear from me for about another week. There was an earthquake. <laughs> you know, we had an earthquake. So anyway, uh, uh, so as I'm going out, I'm with Tom Callahan, who was a sports editor of Time Magazine. Coming in the other direction before going down the ramp, I see coming in the other direction the unforgettable face of Hank Sauer. If any of you know what Hank Sauer looked like, the craggy, like a longshoreman face. I mean. He had this face when he was three years old. <laughs> it, was still the same, it was still the same face. And so, it, there's Hank Sauer. Oh my God. And so everybody's leaving, and he's with a woman, I guess it was his wife, and like two other people, son and daughter-in-law, or daughter and son-in-law, four of them. I said to Tom, Tom, I gotta speak to that man. But I had to speak to him in private. I said, you have, you'll have to talk to the other three people. He said, I don't know these people. What am I possibly going to say? I said, you're a reporter. Make something up. <laughs> so I, I said, excuse me, uh, you're Hank Sauer. And he thought I wanted his autograph in the middle of the earthquake. You know, I said, I, so I introduced myself. I said, I'm a sports columnist for the New York Times. And I have something that I, I want to tell you, but in private. So I pull, go over to the side. You know, he was a big guy with big hands. <laughs> and, and so I said, I said, you know, and you remember 1952? Oh, well, that was my big year. I said, yeah, I know. And I said, <laughs> and I said, and I said, you know, um, your glove disappeared that year. He said, yeah. 
I remember that. It disappeared. I said, well, this is what happened. When you went into batting practice, you threw the glove. There were two, two young kids. He didn't remember the two young kids. I said, but I was one of them. And one of them, the older one, I was 12. There was a 14-year-old. He took the glove, and he ran out, and I had to follow him. And I said, but I, I can't tell you his name because I can't rat on his friend. Hank Sauer said, he had his big hands, and he put his hands around my throat. <laughs> People are streaming out of the ballpark, and he's got his hands around my throat. He said, you stole my glove. I said, no, I <laughs> Then he took his hands away, and he smiled, and he said, and I, and I said, I've been meaning to tell you this for 37 years. And he said, he took his hands away, and he said, I'm, I'm glad you got it off your chest. Okay. He died a few years later, and I wrote the column, which is in the book, for the, my Sports at Times column, about this, and confessing also to the readers of the New York Times. My friend was working at, in Chicago, they have three exchanges, a mercantile exchange and two others, and I don't know which one he's, but he, with his criminal mind, he made a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> he made a lot of money. And so, but I was, in touch with him and friendly with him. And so he would tell people where he's working, and he would show people when I had a Sports at Times column. He said, this is my friend. We grew up together on the <laughs> west side, and he's Ira Burko. We grew up together. So then I write the piece. He calls me. He had seen the piece. And he said, how come you didn't put my name in there? <laughs> I said, you're a criminal. Why would I put your name? You stole the glove. Why would I put your name in there? He said, but it would make me famous, you know. So from that point forward, I would tell his name. His name is Jerry Five. I hope you're listening, and, Jerry. And he played with the glove. He played with the glove until it fell apart. Okay, so that's in the book. Uh, tremendous. Marty? Can you tell us a story about your encounter with Oh, I, I will. But to, to, fin I, to finish with Lee, I, I, I was just, uh, that, I, I didn't end it, but I mean, we came home and, and game seven was just phenomenal. And, and I wrote about it, which, and I was able to get a, a column in the book, and uh, at the beginning of the season, I wrote for a, um, a media thing, that, uh, and I quoted my cousin who said uh, about the Cubs that this coming this year, that year, and he said, I'm not getting sucked in again, you know, Cub fan. But, and then, and I'm setting, they're such a good team. It's official, I'm getting sucked in, and, <laughs> and I did. Uh, Obama, uh, a friend of mine, uh, well, we, a friend of mine was friends with Reinsdorf, and, and I knew Reinsdorf, and Reinsdorf was going to Washington to see the, the Phenom pitch for the first time in Washington, Strasburg. And they're playing the White Sox, and Reinsdorf uh, wanted to see this, as everybody did, so uh, see this guy Strasburg. So uh, it was a reciprocal thing, you know, uh, with the Washington Nationals. They gave him a box, so I was invited to come and be in the box. And so, who comes walking in before the game but a tall, uh, uh, skinny black man wearing a Sox cap, being a Sox fan, and it was the president. This was 2009 or 10. Uh, whichever, but uh, I think it was 2010. And uh, so anyway, it was a small box, there were just a handful of people, and I had an opportunity 
to spend the ball game, much of the game, talking with Obama. And one of the things that we talked about was we have a mutual, uh, well, I, I have a friend, Jonathan Alter. Some of you may know Alter from, uh, and he's a very good writer. And we were at a party, and I was telling this to the president. We were at a party, and uh, Alter said, have you read Obama's book, Dreams from My Father? I said, I hadn't. He said, you have to read the book. It's beautifully written. And he said, when I saw Obama, I told him that it was beautifully written. And I, and I said, this is Alter saying to Obama, and he said, and it was so beautifully done, and you're ruining it for the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I told this to Obama. And then I said, like a lot of people, we, we wondered if you really wrote the book yourself. And I said, I saw that in the acknowledgments of the book, one of your editors was a woman named Ruth Fessage, F as in Frank, F-E-C-Y-C-H. Ruth Fessage edited two of my books, including the Red Smith book and Hank Greenberg book. And so I called Ruth because I knew I would get an honest answer from her. And so now I'm telling this to Obama, like you're Obama. And so I said, so I called Ruth Fessage, and I said, Ruth, did Obama really write that book? And she said, yes, he did. And I said, that son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just recreating the conversation with Ruth Fessage. And I hear I'm saying this to the president, but he laughed. And, uh, and then um, he, when I met him, uh, he said, you wrote the book with Clyde. I wrote a book with Walt Frazier called Rock and Steady. And I said, that's right. You know, I mean, he's a, a basketball junkie. And he didn't say Walt Frazier, he said Clyde. And I said, well, yeah, I, I did. I said, uh, how did you know that? He said, I bought the book when I was 12 years old. And, uh, and then I said, was, um, was Frazier a model for you, at play, playing basketball growing up? And he said, no. He said, the model for me was Lenny Wilkins. Lenny Wilkins was a Hall of Fame basketball player, left-handed, like Obama. So I told Obama that I was, went out to, do, to Seattle to do a magazine story on Wilkins when he was now coaching Seattle. And I saw Frazier. And I said, Clyde, I'm going to see Lenny Wilkins. Would you have a question for him? And Clyde said, yeah. He said, ask him this. I always knew he was going left, but I could never stop him. <laughs> so when I went to Seattle and I saw Wilkins were talking. I said, Frazier had a, Clyde had a question for you. He said, he always knew you were going left, but he couldn't stop you. And he said, why? And Wilkins said, he always knew I was going left, but he never knew when. <laughs> and Obama said, that's like me. When I'm playing with these younger guys, they don't know I'm only left, but they don't know when I'm going. He was, he was, he got excited. He was equating himself with Lenny Wilkins. <laughs> So I, I let it pass. Huh? Willie? How did growing up as a Cubs fan affect your identifying with losing individuals and losing teams and maybe your empathy 
as a writer in those situations? Well, it was, it was really different because when I came to New York and Yankee fans, they expected to win every year. The Cubs, we always hoped for them to get into the second division you know, every year. But I mean, those, so I think that we had a more realistic view of, you know, of, of the, uh, the ebb and flow, the vagaries and vicissitudes of life. Uh, whereas I thought that New Yorkers were unrealistic. They just had this view of you know, winning all the time. Even the Dodgers, I mean, I mean every, year after year, because growing up, it was the, the Dodgers and the Giants and the, and the Yankees are all uh, invariably in, you know, in the World Series or with very good teams. And so, but growing up a Cup fan, you had a, a, real, a realism, you know, there was a realistic view of, uh, well, maybe not this year, but let's try, you know. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, and then we had banks, you know, and, and uh, so we, we had people to root for, you know. Uh, you don't remember Deedles Fondy, De Fondy. Uh, but um, yeah, so, and then there was the, the Cub double play combinations. <laughs> Ramazzotti, the, the, the Roy Smalley <laughs> Sr. Ramazzotti to Smalley to the grandstands. Bourbon <laughs> to Smalley to the grandstands. Mixes to Smalley to the grandstands. <laughs> and uh, I mean, so with all this, you know, I mean, it was, and, 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 and it improved a sense of humor. I mean, Yankee fans, you know, for example, could not have a sense of humor, you know. Cub fans had a sense of humor, you know. Pick up your nine kids or beating the Cubs eight to nothing, you know. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we laughed, you know. I mean, you know, God knows we tried, you know. And so, it, you know, God knows I tried, you know. Uh, you know, so, yeah. But I, I think that was, you know, but you want to follow up, Willie? Really? No, no, I, I mean, uh, yeah. in terms of an influence on you as a writer, what, what effect do you think it had? I, I, I don't know. Um, Again, it was well. It was it was like when um, when I went to college, and I wrote Red Smith. I was writing on the Miami University of Ohio school paper, and it all came as a surprise to me. I got in the school paper by accident, getting a column by accident, and I just thought, gee, this is really fun. This is good, and I remembered Red Smith from reading him next to the box scores in Chicago sometimes. But I knew he was at, I learned he was at the Herald Tribune and, and I wrote him a letter. <clears throat> and I sent him two of my columns. And, and this, is, this is pertinent, I think, to what you're saying. And he wrote me back. Dear Ira Burko, when I was a cub reporter in Milwaukee and writing a story in the city room, the city editor would come by and look over my shoulder. If he liked what I wrote, what he saw, he'd nod and walk away. If he didn't, he'd say, try again. Red Smith wrote, and my advice to you is, try again. <laughs> and again, if you're for this business, and not many really are, you'll have an eternity of sweat ahead. I don't mean just you, I mean anybody. And he picked out two little things uh, uh, that I wrote, uh, and, he's, and, and he's, he said, my first impulse was to, was to paste up your articles and write in marginal criticisms, but they wouldn't have made you happy. Okay. Now, I don't know if my response had anything to do with being a Cub fan, because first I thought, should I be 
uh, disappointed that the great man didn't like my stuff as I would hope for him to do? Or should I be flattered that the great man, what then, one of the great writers in America, uh, was, or should I be flattered that he took the, the time and interest to look myself over and I decided to be flattered? And I got those two columns that I had sent to him. I pasted them up <laughs> and I folded them into an envelope and I wrote him a note. I said, Dear Mr. Smith, please make me unhappy. Aww. And we developed a correspondence, mm. which ended on January 15th, 1982. Uh, and we developed a correspondence, and then I got to know him in New York. And in 19, January 15th, 1982, I was writing a column at home on Red Grange. The sports editor, Joe Vecchio, called and said, Ira, got some sad news. Red died. Red's and we have an advanced obituary uh, in the paper. Uh, we have an advanced obituary, but we don't think it fills the need, and we'd like you to write it. And here is my mentor and my friend, and I'm a professional, so I have to write it. So I do, uh, I said, okay, I can write it at home, because I knew the whole Red Smith story and everything. So we want you to come in the, in the office because we're getting stuff from all over the country. You know, it's a national uh, uh, network news and all that. So I went in and I wrote it, uh, just on deadline. And it was kind of long. Among other things, I wrote, I said that he was generous to college would-be writers. And I didn't mention me, but I mentioned the first part of that letter to me. And, and then I wrote it and the next morning, I got up and in the New York Times, January 16th, I'm pretty sure it's the date, 1982, and it was on my doorstep, and I picked it up, and below the fold was the Red Smith obituary. And uh, it was my first A1 story in the Times. But uh, uh, it, it was there. Yes, Willie. No, it, it's the poetry of that experience Remarkable. Yeah, and then there were people who said, who didn't necessarily know, and they said, this is an unusual kind of obituary, because it seemed kind of personal, <laughs> you know? People had said that, you know? I mean, it started off as a normal, you know, uh, first paragraph, you know, and then I went into some other stuff, but, you know, I, I knew the depth of, of the man, you know, I mean, and, and so from 19, um, uh, from, uh, let me see, uh, 1960 to 1982, so 22 years of an association with him. Uh, we weren't the best of friends, but we were, and I was, uh, you know, but we had a, a warm relationship and we would see each other. And uh, I mean, one time of covering a US Open golf tournament and I'm walking and all of a sudden I hear Ira, like a raspy voice and, and it was Red sitting under the shade of a tree and uh, drinking some lemonade or something. He said, come on over here, you know, and sit down with me. And so, I mean, that was, that was our relationship. And, uh, uh, and, and, and I continued up until I got to the Minneapolis Tribune. Uh, uh, you know, I sent a bunch of stuff from when I was in college uh, and, then, and, and then graduate school. At, I went to Northwestern Graduate School, uh, Medill. And then uh, my first book review I did uh, at the uh, Minneapolis Tribune 
And uh, I sent that to him, and he commented on, on that. And uh, so, yeah, so then when he, and he died, I knew he was getting sick. I knew he was sick. Um, and in fact, uh, I got a call New Year's, New Year's Eve uh, night. It was the New Year, it, it was uh, ni uh, 1980, New Year's Eve, ni 1980, and it was the New York Times, and it was Sandy Padway, who some of you know, and Sandy was the deputy sports editor. And he said, we're looking for somebody to replace Red. Red's been sick, and we'd, and we'd, we'd like to hire you. Because uh, we Red is, and I said, I don't want to take a job to replace Red Smith. I said, I'll, and, and I wasn't even looking at that time for a newspaper job, but I said, it, you know, it's the New York Times. I thought if I worked there for one year, uh, it'll look good on my resume. Tw <laughs> 26 years later, <laughs> I, said, I said, I think it looks good enough for the rest of I'm gonna quit. But uh, uh, so um, that was that was my resume. I haven't but I've been sitting here staring at the front page. And, and obviously, I've learned today about a wide-ranging subject matter. I'm wondering about the choices. You have the Maggio, the Maze, and the Clemens Quartet. You haven't mentioned them at all. As a Yankee fan, I'm wondering why Mickey is there. But just well, Mickey's on the cover. It's his picture. Photo is I was reading the, yeah. I understand what happens on his spring though, so. Yeah, no, I, uh, <laughs> that's Mickey Sweeney. You couldn't see that from there, my hand. Yeah, yeah, but, but well, but you haven't talked about any of those. Why did you pick those names? Well, obviously, the famous stars. Talk to the publisher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I suggest. The book is left off, and is there a second book? Yeah, I, I suggested the title uh, of, of of It Happens Every Spring, and I said the sub it's up the subtitle's up to you guys. Right. You know. Do you have anything on on the movie and the book? On whom? On the movie, it happens every spring. No, 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 no. Uh, there, was a, there was a movie in 1949 with Ray Milan. It's called It Happens Every Spring. And you can't copyright a title. And, I, and I just, a friend of mine mentioned the, the, the title when I was thinking about a title. And I said, you know, who's going to remember 70 years later except, <laughs> except Lee Lowenfish, you know? Yeah, so, uh, and anyway, it doesn't matter, you know, so it's... It's a great film. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's, it's a fun film, and, uh, you know, so uh, I, I thought that the, the title would, would be okay, and, and it would evoke emotion. Yeah, yes? I have a question. Um, in terms of your writing, did you, did you find a team or an individual player that was the easiest to write about, or a team or individual is the hardest? Well, right in, individuals, not, not some of the team. Well, the team sometimes with the, uh, the Indians uh, at one point uh, when they had Lofton and they had Eddie Murray and you go into their clubhouse and they all had their boom boxes on. You know, they, you know, so they, they didn't want the reporters to talk, you know, and, and so you couldn't talk to them as far as, that's one team that I remember. Um, but as far as, the, it was the players. And um, uh, the, the best players, uh, or the best athletes were people who could fill up your notebook with a qu with one question, you know, and they would just go on. And then if they're going off the track, you come in with something else, you know. But um, uh, of course, number one would be Muhammad Ali, you know. For uh, but also, right up there is Pete Rose, 
And, uh, and I learned at, what, at one point that, uh, you know, sometimes you would, um, I want to do a story on Jay Goldberg, but I would talk to some people around Jay Goldberg, including Marcy. And, I, and so, and I would, I would ask them, you know, uh, and, and so then I would come back to Jay and then I would I have my, this background and I would say, you know, well, you know, Marcy said this about you, blah, blah, blah. So, but with Pete Rose, uh, and I'm doing something, I remember doing something, I, I was on Steve Carlton, who wouldn't shake my hand when he was there. But anyway, so I would talk to other people, but, and I found you cannot go to Pete Rose to talk to him about other players because he would give you such good stuff about him <laughs> that you'd be wind up talking about Pete Rose because, not that he was trying to do this, but he just had all this stuff, you know. I mean, I mean if Pete Rose gave you a statistic on him or somebody else. You wouldn't have to go to baseball reference. You wouldn't have to go to baseball encyclopedia. You can put that in the bank, because Pete knew this stuff. Pete was, Pete is smart. He's flawed. We all know that, but he's smart. And, uh, and he's smart enough to be the hit king, you know. And uh, I mean, that, I mean, what an achievement, you know. And what people don't realize, what kind of a team player Pete Rose was. He, Talk about records that won't be broken. He started in all-star games in five different positions. First base, second base, third base, left field, and right field. Break that record. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and he, wherever you, you could have put him at catcher. I mean, you know, wherever, whatever I could do to help this team, I'm going to do it. As opposed to a player who didn't give us very much who was beloved, Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter gave you vanilla, and I had nothing against him. He, it, it, vanilla is vanilla, okay. <laughs> but we, we remember that when Alex Rodriguez came to the Yankees, Alex Rodriguez was the best shortstop in baseball. Alex Rodriguez went to third base. Jeter did not go to third base. A thought, that's all, just a thought. Anyone who hasn't asked a question yet? At least. Is, is Sid Hartman still the only colleague you ever had who interviewed a horse? <laughs> well, I, I interviewed the horse. Oh. I interviewed the horse. He, that, that's a great he, he, was, uh, he was the sports editor of the Minneapolis Tribune, and they sent me to the, do the Kentucky Derby, and Minneapolis, Minnesota didn't have horse racing. And uh, the reason they were sent down there was that someone prominent with, who was friends with the owner of Paper Coles, uh, they had a float in the Kentucky Derby parade. So I was sent down to cover the Kentucky Derby because of the float. And, uh, and, uh, and, then I, and I went to Calumet Farm and I did a story. Sid was semi-literate, he was a sports editor. At best he was semi-literate. And, and uh, uh, so, so I went down and I, I went to Calumet Farm and I did a story on old citation. And then it was sent by telegram, you know, and then the, what do you call those things at the, with, with Fax? The, the text, you know, would come, would come up and the teletype. And so Sid Hartman goes over to the teletype and I'm, I'm really interviewing the trainer who was out of ca central casting, I mean, <laughs> Kentucky horse racing trainer. And so I'm using his dialogue and everything. And so as I was told, Sid Hartman looks at the stuff coming up 
And he said, I knew I shouldn't have sent the son of a bitch down to Kentucky. He's interviewing a horse. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it said also, um, one summer, he, uh, his nephew, Denny Shapiro, was an intern one summer. So Denny, he sends him out to do a yacht story, also a friend of Cole's owners, they, and a suburb. So Kenny, uh, uh, Denny packs himself a little sandwich and a brown paper bag, and he takes this bus and that bus and this bus and that bus, and he goes there and maybe he orders a, a Coke. Then he comes back, he's eating his sandwich, he takes this bus, that bus, this bus, and so now he comes and he hands the expense account to Sid, his uncle. The expense account was like for $11. Sid says, Denny, come over here for a minute. And Sid's sitting at his desk. And he brandishes the expense account. And he said, Denny, you're ruining it for the rest of us. <laughs> I mean, it was at least a $75 trip, you know. <laughs> For anybody else, that was eleven dollars for, for, for poor Denny. <laughs> the uh, yeah. due to due to time constraints, we're going to have to and, and come to the close of the podcast. So I, I'm going to give Ira the last word. Uh, it was just really fascinating listening to Ira's stories, and this book has 446 pages of uh, amazing writing. And I just want to end. Uh, as the regulars here know, we, we don't let the authors come, open the book, read three pages, and put everyone to sleep. Uh, with this, there's a little bit of an exception. Uh, there's a story, we're not going to read the story, but th there's a story in this book called Final Countdown, The Fatalism of the Baseball Writer. And just to set it up, it's, uh, and you can correct me if, if this is not accurate, but if you're a member of the Baseball Writers Association, a writer, you, you get a card, and your number on the card is uh, how long you've been a writer in that group. And you recount that you started out with number uh, 142 and you get down at one point to number 20. That's what this story is. You're, you're now at number 20 and, uh, and all that means. And I just want to end it with the last four paragraphs. I don't know if you would like to read it or uh, if you would, okay. but if not, then I, then I would all be right. glad to. And just, uh, a few years ago is, is how this ends. Uh, a few years ago, there was now with the the baseball writers uh, card that the longer you're there, the lower your number goes. And there were some people who didn't want to admit what their number was. <laughs> and uh, and number one is uh, as Bus said, it was number one once. He says this is better than the alternative. Uh, a few years ago, there was an old Sandlot player, an 87-year-old baseball fan named Harold, who lay in a Chicago hospital bed with severe heart congestion. The doctor took Harold's son aside and told him that his father had maybe a month or so to live. Should he tell the father? The son said yes. His dad could take the truth, and also the son could never lie to his father or deal in subterfuge. His father would see right through it. With Harold propped up on a pillow, the doctor related the news to him as gently as he could and then departed. The son, now sitting alone at bedside, looked at the man who had just been given a literal death sentence. How do you feel, Dad, he asked. There was a brief silence. Like I told Ma, my father said to me, nobody lives forever. I'm not scared and I'm not depressed. I've tried to live a full and good life, tried to do the right thing. I hope I have. I told him, yes, he had. 
and then grew emotional. I believe, or want to believe, that Babe Ruth and Red Smith may have felt the same way as my father, as I hope I feel when the number on my baseball card is about to reach zero. It happens every spring. Thank you.